But we must see that the struggle today is much more difficult. It's more difficult today because we are struggling now for genuine equality. And it's much easier to integrate a lunch counter than it is to guarantee a livable income and a good solid job. It's much easier to guarantee the right to vote than it is to guarantee the right to live in sanitary, decent housing conditions. It is much easier to integrate a public park than it is to make genuine, quality, integrated education a reality. And so today we are struggling for something which says we demand genuine equality. It's not merely a struggle against extremist behavior toward Negroes. And I'm convinced that many of the very people who supported us in the struggle in the South are not willing to go all the way now. I came to see this in a very difficult and painful way in Chicago over the last year where I've lived and worked. Some of the people who came quickly to march with us in Selma and Birmingham were active around Chicago. And I came to see that so many people who supported morally and even financially what we were doing in Birmingham and Selma were really outraged against the extremist behavior of Bull Connor and Jim Clark toward Negroes rather than believing in genuine equality for Negroes. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave that speech, which was entitled The Other America, in 1967, because he saw the unbreakable bonds between racism and economic oppression. He made those links throughout his life, right up to the day before he was assassinated in Memphis in 1968, when he marched in support of striking sanitation workers. And here we are today, with the murder of George Floyd and mass uprisings taking place across the nation. If King were alive today, he would certainly link police brutality to economic oppression. The killing of George Floyd and other African Americans before Floyd, who were victims of police violence on the one hand, and the scourge of capitalism that has brutalized people of color for decades. And that's what we talk about today, as well as tonight, in a special live stream of the new Working Life show on YouTube. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life podcast for June 3rd, 2020. A reminder, of course, that this podcast is sponsored by the American Postal Workers Union, which fights for dignity and respect on the job and decent pay and benefits and safe working conditions for its 200,000 United States Postal Service employees and retirees and nearly 2,000 private sector mail workers. And of course, as I often say, you can hear this podcast all over the internet in various places and of course on the Progressive Radio Network Thursdays at 6 p.m. We depend not just on our major sponsor, but small financial supporters like many of our listeners. So please do go over to workinglife.org and click on that podcast tab and look for our link to Patreon and you can become a financial sponsor of the show at whatever level you can afford. So to get the Working Life News internal stuff out of the way, I've been working on launching our video show for some months now, and tonight it's on. 
a live stream starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, though most of the future shows will be pre-recorded, including next week's show, giving the most in-depth understanding of the chaotic unemployment system in the country, which I hope will be really helpful to so many workers who are out of a job and especially the people who may be trying to file for unemployment for the first time and are just drowning in the chaos. But tonight, the topic will be what we are talking about today on this audio podcast, and that is racism and economic oppression with the backdrop of the killing of George Floyd. And we're going to have some really great guests, so please do tune in tonight. And you can go over to YouTube, that's youtube.com, and look for our channel by simply typing in youtube.com slash working life with Jonathan Tassini. And also, while you're there, subscribe and spread the word. I hope you enjoy it. And of course, we're going to be taking some audience questions as well. So as Dr. King so eloquently put it in his speech, racism and economic oppression are twin forces of evil wielded against African Americans and people of color. This is a long historical reality that goes back to the days of slavery, and it lives with us today. Here's a fact. African American wealth is dramatically lower than white people. And I'm pulling the statistic of wealth to look at not income for a reason. If you looked at wealth data, for example, in 2016, the most recent data to compare this that I have at my fingertips, black households have a median wealth of about $16,600 compared to the median white household, which sits at about $162,800. In other words, white households own nearly 10 times more wealth than black households. Yes, the pandemic economic collapse has certainly, likely, shrunk that median number for white households, but if it has, then surely black households have been hit as hard or harder. And I'm looking here at wealth just to pull out one statistic, and I could give you hundreds, because it's a real sign of whether people can get by when times get tough. If you have some wealth, you might have a little cushion. If you have no wealth or very little, you have nothing to rely on. And we already know, this is a fact, that the majority of Americans say that if they had an emergency of $400 or more, they could not find the money to pay for that emergency. And so just based on the statistics that I mentioned about wealth, you know that when it comes to those kinds of emergencies, African Americans are disproportionately more vulnerable than white people. Here's another way racism plays out in economic terms. African Americans are overrepresented as a share of the population in public sector jobs. Put simply, public sector jobs were a bit easier to snag because the racism that was blocking African Americans and other people of color was less rampant in public sector jobs than in the private sector. As my colleague Dean Baker of the Center for Economic and Policy Research points out, in the 1990s, the African-American share of state and local employment was almost 40% higher than its share of private sector employment. State and local governments provided millions of African-Americans middle-class jobs that they were denied in the private sector. So when you have Republicans like Mitch McConnell pledging to block aid, to 
to state and local governments that have been devastated by the pandemic from an economic point of view, it's a racist position, if not an explicit one, but it's still racist. The truth is that when public pensions are devastated, and those are the public pensions that state and local governments still have to now try to make up a gap that clearly is there because of the decline of the stock market, that's going to hurt people of color disproportionately, as will the deep cuts that politicians are going to make in public sector jobs. Of course, they'll do that rather than raise taxes on the rich. I've talked about economic racism a lot in this show. In fact, I thought because of the uprisings that have been happening across the nation in dozens of cities and local communities, that it would be a good time to re-air two segments from 2018 that really go to the heart of the matter. The first was from episode 65, which you can find like all our episodes in our archive. And that was right around the marking of the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. King. And it was a conversation that I had with Janelle Jones of the Economic Policy Institute about economics and economic racism. The second conversation was with Valerie Wilson, also the Economic Policy Institute. Some months later, we spoke to mark Black Women's Equal Pay Day. These chats are from roughly two years ago, but you know what? The same shit is happening now every single day. So first, my conversation with Janelle Jones. I noted as I was reading your report and the work around it, that specifically the tweet that EPI sent out, and I'll just quote it and then let you kind of riff off of this. All of these measures of racial economic inequality show that we are a long way from remedying the vestiges of racism and the centuries of federal, state, and local policies that created these disparities. And um, I want to focus on that word, centuries of policies. Right. So tell me what your reaction is to that. Sure. So this piece that my colleague Valerie Wilson wrote, um, really, she wanted to make the point that, you know, the dream that everyone has been talking about all weekend is so far from being fulfilled. Um, And we can say that, you know, it's not just that it's not being fulfilled now, You know, African-Americans in this country have spent basically centuries, as you've noted, being underpaid for their work, not valued, valued as property. Um, So these, you know, these things that kind of created the country that, you know, all of us very much appreciate and love are still continuing to keep African-Americans underpaid, overworked um, and undervalued. Mm -hmm. And in the actual report, um, there are two things that jumped out at me, which I think is just stunning to me, that the difference in median household between white workers and African-Americans, and we use the median um, number because to use the, the cliche I like to use or the example, if you say average, if Bill Gates and I were in a room together, the at, magically I would be a billionaire as well because <laughs> Correct, of the yeah. average income. So just for my listeners, that's why median is more accurate and explains more because it talks about um, the half the people 50% above a certain level and then the other half 50% below. And it's incredible. The median household income is tens of thousands of dollars difference, 39,490 for black households versus 65,000 
41 for white households. And then I'll just add the other statistic and then let you kind of comment on both of them. The difference in median in family net worth and net worth is so important because let's say if you have a crisis, let's say a healthcare crisis or some other crisis, you have something to go back on and dig into to kind of tide you over. For example, if you happen to be unemployed for a number of months and that difference in net worth is hundreds of thousands of dollars difference, 17600 for black families and 171000 for white families. Yeah, no, these numbers that you point out are just unbelievable. And the importance of, and you know, so we talk about median hourly wages here at EPI quite often because mm-hmm. it's so important. A lot of people do earn their labor income from their hourly wage, and we see that there's still a gap. But when we get to median household income, this is an even bigger indicator. It, it has a little bit more economic security. And as you pointed out, it's tens of thousands of dollars. But this racial wage gap is, I mean, it's astounding. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the importance of wealth is just, I mean, it can't be overstated. It allows you to transfer income um, in the past to meet spending demands in the future. It helps you provide economic security from periods of unemployment or starting a business. Um, It lets you leave something to your kids. It lets you, you know, whether a medical emergency, there's, there's just no way we can understate the importance of wealth. And the fact that the racial wealth gap is hundreds of thousands of dollars is just unbelievable. And what we've seen is this has come at a time when the economy has grown. You know, the economy has been growing for generations and African-Americans have kind of, you know, done their part. They've gotten more education. They've worked longer hours. They do all of the things that you're really supposed to do to have economic security, but what we see is that the returns to those things for black workers are just not the same as they are for white workers. Right, and if people want to think for a second of an example of how important family wealth is, think of the moment during the financial crisis, which people refer to as the Great Recession. I always say it's the Great Depression because it, you know, the difference between the Depression and the Recession is who it happens to, and so right. many people were devastated. And just think about what household wealth is able to do in those kinds of crises is it can tide you over. It can save a home. It can actually just feed a family. If you've lost your job and millions of people, regular people did lose their jobs as people know, and it, it's still, we're still really trying to recover from that. And so that um, economic crisis affected African-Americans and also the white working class as well and uh, Hispanic um, workers, but certainly African-American workers um, especially because of what we talked about in terms of wealth. Right. No, and you make a great point. So what we saw is that African-Americans who were able to accumulate some wealth in the form of housing had it completely, completely wiped out in the Great Recession. And we saw that there was the exposure to predatory high interest loans were more prevalent in African-American communities. We know that, you know, given the same type of house that African-American homes tend to appreciate less than white homes, and so what we saw is that the, the little bit of wealth that they were able to scrap together over a generation was mostly wiped out due to the housing crisis. And then we see that in the recovery, you know, white neighborhoods have definitely recovered faster than black neighborhoods. We see this not just in housing, but also in unemployment rates. 
So there's been some talk about historic unemployment rates, uh, historically low unemployment rates for African-American workers. And that's true, but it's nothing, I mean, it's nothing that we should be really jumping all over ourselves about. If the white unemployment rate was 7%, you know, we would say that this is a crisis. It's not really something to congratulate. Mm-hmm. So what we see is that, you know, African-Americans tend to be hurt more when there's an economic downturn and it takes them longer to recover um, if they even do recover back to where they were. And here's something that I want to connect to, which is a really important work that you and Valerie Wilson did back in March, which as I was reading all about this and preparing for this discussion, it was a report that you did and it was entitled Low-Wage African-American Workers Have Increased Annual Work Hours Most Since 1979. And by the way, People, my listeners, can see all this great work at epi.org. And I think that's an important point to make that, as you point out in this first sentence, one of the first sentences, some have argued that the disparity in wages, which eventually means you know how people accumulate wealth, uh, between blacks and whites is the result of white workers working longer and harder than black workers. And you know that, that has a racism element to that thought. Mm-hmm. But what you show was it wasn't true. Right. No, it's definitely not true. Black workers work just as much as white workers. For black women, they have always, since, you know, generations ago, they have always worked more than their white female counterparts. So the idea that the reason why black people have disparities in wages and household income and wealth is due to their lack of effort or, or you know, lack of work hours is just simply not true. I mean, the, the reason for this and not, you know, not to be too forward, I mean, the reason of this is mostly racial discrimination. So we see that you can compare, you know, black women and white men in the exact same occupation, I'm talking about physicians, surgeons, lawyers, and there's, you know, $15 hourly wage gap. Hmm. What's causing that? Like, how do we do that? You, do, you go to school, you get a law degree, you're a lawyer. You know, what's causing these kind of disparities? We show that at every education level, black workers earn less than white workers. So we're talking about black and white workers who all have advanced degrees. You know, what's causing this gap in wages here? And we know in terms of unemployment rates that at every level of education, black unemployment rates are higher than white unemployment rates. Right. And you're not being forward when you said, I did. you didn't mean to be too forward. It's just straight out racism. And that's <laughs> going back to the um, tweet that EPI put out that this goes back centuries and um, everything this country is still doing has not remedied that. And that's one of the things that I think is important to recognize and why I wanted to speak with you in light of the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. King, um, that, you know, you really have these kinds of embedded racist economic policies that are continuing every single day. And here's a great example to that, to the point of accumulation of wealth. And it's somewhat subtle. You know, it's not uh, Paul Ryan, the Republicans running around um, yelling racial epithets and being racist in the way that Donald Trump is. It's in, in the policies. And, and, I'll, and I'll mention it. So on the one hand, they passed this tax bill, which in fact included an estate tax cut, which is really about wealthy white families getting a huge amount of money. And on the other hand, they're absolutely opposed to raising the minimum wage, which could certainly Mm -hmm. help certainly all uh, workers, but in particular could help um, African-Americans do somewhat better in terms of accumulating wealth, right? Right. No, you're making a great point. And so we see, yeah, we see that this rhetoric does not 
I mean, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for helping low-wage black workers. So particularly when we're talking about the minimum wage, I mean, black workers, women of color are so overrepresented in these jobs. Mm. When we talk about raising the federal minimum wage to you know, $10, 12 $15 an hour, it's going to be these people who see a disproportionate increase. And we know that, you know, I mean, I'll just say the Republicans love to talk about, you know, local government and everyone deciding with their vote. But what we see are Republican governors preempting localities from actually raising their minimum wage. And what we saw in Missouri last year was heartbreaking because these low wage workers had actually won a minimum wage, minimum wage increase. They were actually making more money. And we actually saw that taken from them. And something that we talk about um, in terms of kind of racial disparities is you make the good point is that you know there's a lot of conversation about individual responsibility and individual choice but it is hard for one african-american worker to go up against generations of structural institutional racist policy i mean it's 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 ridiculous it's impossible like no no one worker can do that and so when we talk about i mean you're talking about the tax plan but you know we can go back to housing and you know the ramifications of redlining and covenants, those are still with us. We have housing segregation that is, you know, as prevalent today as it was when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And this is something about home values. This is something about schools. This is something about crime. This is something about education and children and families and, and local labor markets. So all of these things are connected. And, you know, it's, it's been going on forever. And I think that the conversation about personal responsibility and individuals making right choices, there's just, there's so little to that when you stack it up against generations of institutional racism. And now, my conversation with Valerie Wilson. And I guess this isn't surprising to me, Valerie, but I've had trouble here comparing two documents, meaning I always have to look at the date that I'm looking on between the study and the conversation that you we've had on Black Women's Equal Pay Day, and I had Janelle Jones on last year, roughly exactly at the same time, versus now, meaning it's not any better. And certainly the figures show that the disparity between what black women earn compared to white men is essentially the same disparity a year ago. And again, I have to make sure I'm looking at the right document. Black women workers were paid only 67 cents on the dollar relative to white non-Hispanic men. And now the number is 66 um, compared to non-Hispanic white men. So essentially, this is a bad situation. Now, no one expected this to change in a year, but it is very reflective in the way that policy and certainly the government we have now is stuck in a place where things just don't get better. Well, there are at least two things that we can say about pay inequality. One, pay gaps are large, and two, they're extremely persistent. So there has never been a point in history when we could say, oh, wow, uh, you know, black women were, were earning almost as much as white men at this time, and then this happened. Um, you know, this has been a reality for a number of years. And in fact, uh, 66 cents on the dollar 
is better than it was, say, 30, 40 years ago. But really, over the last uh, 20 years or so, that that gap has been very persistent and and actually has widened a bit. Mm. And in your particular post with Madison Matthews this year, the thing that really jumped out at me, and I'm going to raise this conversation in my next segment when I talk about the gaps that Hispanic workers are facing, what's really striking is we hear all this rhetoric about if you just get educated more, and this is true, by the way, for all workers, this has been the rhetoric we hear from the elites, that the problem is that you need to get more skills, you need to get better educated, you need to go to college, and that will improve your pay when in fact, when you actually look at the jobs being created, now I'm talking about for all workers, they don't necessarily need these amazing skills that require you to go to college. A lot of workers could get good jobs if they were paying decently with relatively modest skills, and especially if they were in union jobs. And my point is that in your blog post, you really, that's what you focus on, that occupational segregation does decrease with education, but it remains really high. Yes, indeed. And I, I think there's something, you know, we need to understand the role that education plays in, in labor market outcomes. Uh, I think there's no question that education, more education is important for mobility. For example, you will definitely earn more money on average as a college graduate than you would if you just had a, a high school diploma. What uh, more education does not do is eliminate these pay disparities uh, either on the, along the lines of race or along the lines of gender. So education doesn't give you equal outcomes. It will give you better outcomes than if you had less education. But when we compare across racial lines or gender lines, it, it does not narrow those gaps. And let's just take an example of the chart, the other chart that you have in this really important post. Let's just take an example of the ba- a bachelor's degree. A white man with a bachelor's degree will, will earn $72,000 compared to a black woman who would earn $43,000, which is close to 60% of what a white man would earn. So that's just an exact um, example of what you just described. Exactly, exactly. And and also that's considered, you know, these are median annual wages that we're estimating um, in this table. So that's the person in the middle of the earnings distribution, half earn less, half earn more. Um, but the fact that there's such a, a difference at the median gives you a sense of, you know, what the broader uh, distribution are or how great that inequality is overall across the, the workforce. And that's a, one of the things that you talked about last year when you co-wrote the piece that I um, referenced that I spoke with Janelle about last year. You referenced that that was one of the myths that people keep putting out there, that if black women or generally African-Americans or Hispanics or other people who are being paid less, if only they were educated more, they would get paid better. And that's just, that's, that's just false. It is, in fact, a myth. Well, like I said, it doesn't close those racial or gender pay gaps. You will get more money if you have a college degree than if you don't. That doesn't mean you're going to get the same amount that a white male would earn in the workforce with that same degree. I think that's sort of where uh, the misunderstanding lies. And the fact is, uh, when we look back over time, if we go back even just uh, the last 50 years, uh, African-Americans and, and women, African-American women in particular, have made tremendous strides in, in increasing levels of education. But these wage gaps have not gone away. So we don't see the same sorts of returns to education that others may see. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I should be more specific. It is about the disparities comparing white men to black women 
at the same level of educational attainment. And one of the things that was that I was curious about is how how does gender play into this? And I guess you would then have to compare black women to black men and their relative wages to white men or certainly white women, but certainly to white men. I assume that black women face both the race issue and the gender issue at the same time. Yes. One of the things that I, one of the ways that I describe it is to say that, you know, black women face at least a dual penalty in the labor market, one based on racial bias, the other based on gender bias. Um, and the research that I've done in a report that we released a couple of years ago when we were uh, analyzing the black-white wage gap, uh, we were showing that more of that wage disadvantage for black women is actually based on gender than on race. So that black women and white women's uh, wages are, are closer together than either are to white men. Hmm. That's pretty that's pretty. Um, not surprising, but also an important clarification. Now, if we kind of move a little bit from the numbers, although they're connected to the policy question, we have both the government and people in the policy positions, certainly at the federal government and also at the state level, who are not interested um, as a whole in addressing this in an aggressive way, let's face it. And certainly at the federal government, we have a government uh, in Washington that's hostile directly to the notion that um, we should be addressing racism in a very, very upfront, direct way, certainly in the marketplace, but in other facets. So where do you think we take these numbers? Here we are recognizing this, this day of Black Women's Equal Pay Day yesterday. What do we do in terms of taking these numbers and trying to change that, given the hostility that we see in the government? Well, I think we have to really look beyond our the current uh, administration. Um, you know, I, I don't expect them to sort of suddenly have a, a change of heart and decide that they're going to address uh, inequality in in any sort of meaningful way. But we have to continue to you know make this message known. I think that part of the reason that uh, racial inequality and gender inequality don't get a lot of focus and attention from our elected officials is that really the the sort of preconceived idea or belief is that in some sort of way, these differences must be justified. So, you know, we spoke earlier about uh, people saying, well, you have to get more education or, oh, well, you're, you're not in the, the right kind of job. You shouldn't choose a job that doesn't, doesn't pay much. You should get a, a degree in computer science and, and go work in, in, a, in a STEM field. Or, but, you know, work, or, or that you just have to work harder, which was one of the myths or that, work harder. that you pointed out <laughs> with your colleagues last year. I love that myth number one, which I'm looking at. Love it as a, I'm being sarcastic. If black women worked harder, they get the pay that is, they deserve. And in fact, they work more hours than white women, if even comparing within gender. So, Right. And so I, I think, you know, the the idea is that people who are experiencing pay inequality or, or pay gaps there must be something they're doing wrong. There, there, there has to be some explanation for, for why that is the case. I think until we as a nation get beyond the idea that, you know, people get what they deserve and they don't, <laughs> that it's, it's difficult to really make any sort of, of headway in policy and things that will address these disparities. Now, one thing I think that is important uh, that I think that, you know, can be done even at a local level is really putting some more focus and attention on the issue of pay transparency. 
So, you know, let's be more transparent about what, how hiring decisions are made, how, how pay decisions are made, how we decide who gets promoted or, or gets a raise. Um, you know, that would, would go a long way to hopefully leveling the playing field some and, and empowering people that, that when they are discriminated against to have the evidence they need to go forward and, and to get what they deserve. Mm-hmm. And although you don't address it in this specific blog post relating to recognizing the Equal Pay Day this year, I know that you've thought about this and know a lot of it about this issue. It seems to me that part of the disparity has to do, and the growing disparity or the stalling of that is all the stuff we talked about, plus the, the decline in unionization. The fact that, to, to your point about both transparency and leverage and power in the workplace, Black women, like all workers, but certainly Black women, face this reality that they don't have a union supporting them. Increasingly, that's true. Right. And and one of the, the things that a union does is provide you with a contract you have in writing. <laughs> you know, this is what you're entitled to. This is the process that uh, you will follow to get advances in pay, so on and so forth. And, you know, without that sort of power to, to collectively bargain for those things and without having that sort of transparency and, and having those things in writing, we find that, that managers and, and people in, in charge of hiring, on average, uh, don't necessarily work from the kindness of their heart. If they can get away with paying people less, they will. So we need that balance of power so that the workers are are empowered and have the leverage they need to bargain for better pay and for better working conditions. And so next year, when I come back and talk to you again about this, what do we hope to accomplish in the next 12 months? And I know this is a systemic issue. It's not going to go away, even if not just in a year, but it's probably going to take many years. In fact, racism has been around for decades and it's hardcore and in the nature of the country. So what at least can we accomplish in the next 12 months where when you and I talk about this next year, there'll be something to say, okay, there's been some improvement. You know, I would really love if we don't end this conversation at midnight on April 8th, I mean, August 8th. <laughs> you know, we, we have this day each year and, and, you know, there's lots of tweets that go out. People are talking about it in the news, but the conversation ends when the, the calendar changes. Um, I think this is a conversation that really needs to be ongoing. We really need to be informed about the persistence of, of pay gaps, again, both by race and gender, um, about the magnitude of the pay gaps, what it means. But more than that, people need to understand that we all you know, have a stake in this. I think so often the conversation is about, oh, well, that's you know, not about me directly. Oh, that's so bad for them. But, you know, okay, how is that really my problem? I think we need to think more collectively and really see ourselves as a society and a, a community in which, you know, it, it empowers and it, it benefits all of us when all of the members of our society and our economy are flourishing. You mean we shouldn't be talking more and more about more Russia, Russia, Russia? That's, I think that that's the most important thing on the nation's agenda, don't you? I'm being sarcastic if you can't tell. <laughs> Well, that's an important thing, but is not necessarily more important than addressing this issue that, that we've been facing in this country since its founding, essentially. And I, write, I like the way that you phrase this in your blog post, um, moving toward a more integrated workforce would not just create social benefits of greater racial and gender diversity in the workplace, but also narrow wage gaps and create greater economic mobility for black women. Right. It's an it's an economic issue, definitely. It's not just about, 
oh, people should work, you know, should we should work next to pe- more people who don't look like us. We should. That's that's good. That's an that's important. But there's an economic cost to not doing that as well beyond just sort of the oh, I, I see people who don't look at me. I get to benefit from ideas that I may not have thought of. You know, there's a real economic cost to when we have a, a segregated and unequal workforce um, and society. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Thanks to my guests, Janelle Jones and Valerie Wilson for coming on the show back in 2018 and giving us all of this context that's really important for this day and for this moment. Thanks to our audio editor, as usual, David Hebden. Thanks to our major sponsor, the American Postal Workers Union. Again, I want to encourage you to join us tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on our live stream at the Working Life Network TV show you can find that at youtube.com slash working life with Jonathan Tassini. And we're going to be talking again about this whole issue of economic racism in the context of the killing of George Floyd. Please do subscribe and support this podcast. You can do that by going over to workinglife.org, clicking on the podcast tab, following our link over to Patreon, and there you can become a supporter at whatever level you can afford. And next week, you'll be able to hear this show, not just in our audio cast, but also as part of the Working Life Network TV show. Thanks for listening. Look forward to having you back next week.